the war was the culmination of more or less 70 years of conflict between the Arabs living in Palestine and the Jews who immigrated to Palestine from 1882 onwards. It's probably the most important of Israel's wars. It's the most important in the sense that it is the one which changed the geopolitical realities of the Middle East. The war broke out the day after the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution proposing the partition or division of Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. The Jews said yes. There were fringe groups in the Jewish community which didn't accept it, but the Zionist mainstream and its leadership said yes. The Arabs of Palestine, their leadership, and the leaders of the surrounding Arab states all said no. And on 30 November, the day after the resolution, the shooting began. Arabs began shooting at Jewish targets, and gradually the war snowballed into a full-scale war. It was an unusual war, the 1940s war by international war. Historical standards were unusual in a number of ways. Firstly, it was composed of two distinct, different halves more or less dividing uh, in, uh, equally six months for each. In, uh, the first half of the war from November 1947 until May 1948 was a civil war between the Palestinian uh, communities, the Jewish and Arab communities of Palestine. Simply a civil war with militias shooting at each other, villages, villagers shooting at each other in, in, until it ended with Jewish victory on the 14th of May 1948 when the State of Israel was declared. And the next day, the 15th of May, the second half of the war began, a war between the states, between the newly declared State of Israel and the neighboring Arab countries who invaded Palestine, and some of them attacking Israel in, uh, on the 15th of May. And for the following six months or seven months, there was a war between the states, which Israel also won, uh, assuring its um, uh, presence, its continued presence uh, in the Middle East. It was also an unusual war, uh, certainly the civil war, half of the war, um, insofar as it was a war fought between two communities while a third country was actually ruling the, ruling the land. The British had a mandate over Palestine since uh, the beginning of the 1920s, more or since they conquered the country in 1917-18 from the Ottoman Empire, and they ruled officially until the 14th of May 1948, and had troops, had an administration in place in, 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 until the 14th of May. In other words, they were there when the Jews and Arabs were busy fighting, and there were all sorts of uh, views of how the British functioned during those six months in which the communities were uh, at loggerheads, but they were there and affected the way the war was fought by both sides. My study during part of the millennium of the war underlined the importance, in my view, of the religious element in the war. In other words, the war wasn't just a political territorial war, though it was that as well, but it was also a religious war from the Palestinian side or from the Arab side in general, a jihad, a holy war against an infidel presence or infidel takeover of land which they regarded as Muslim and sacred. Over the decades of conflict, the amount of religion involved in the war in Palestine and outside varied on the Jewish side, 1948 wasn't a holy war, it wasn't a jihad, it wasn't a religious war. For the very simple reason that the Jewish population of Palestine, at the time incidentally numbering about 630,000, maybe more than 90% non-religious. The whole of the Zionist movement from 1882 was essentially a secular movement, a movement which overthrew God. Before that, Jews had believed in God in the diaspora in Eastern Europe, etc. 
the Zionist movement, in addition to being a national rebellion to reach to achieve national rights for the Jews in Palestine, was also a rebellion against God or the religious establishment, the whole idea of religion dictating the lives of people. And so when the, the leadership of the Zionists moved towards the war in the 30s and 40s, they weren't thinking in terms of religion. Uh, they knew that uh, Jerusalem had been the, the holy city of Judaism over the centuries. They knew that it was the capital of a Jewish state uh, in uh, centuries past. But they weren't thinking in terms of a religious conquest or religious achievement. The idea of the Third Temple, which now we sometimes hear from uh, uh, Jews here and there, uh, was, uh, would have been regarded as ridiculous, was regarded as ridiculous, never even arose, even among the small segment of the Jewish uh, population in Palestine, they wouldn't have even, even raised the subject because it sounded so ludicrous in 1947-48. In, in the uh, bureaucracy and machinery of Zionism, uh, of the new state, in 48, the religious element had a very, very insignificant part. They didn't have a, any, any real presence in the army, the security services, or any of the important ministries in the country. Um, so religion wasn't important. Um, now, unfortunately, in my view, a religion has become an element in a, a, the conflict from the Zionist side as well, because the religious element within Zionism has grown uh, disproportionately over the decades due to uh, large, uh, much higher birth rates, and so uh, Israeli governments today have large uh, religious um, um, coalition partners um, and uh, have a, a lot of weight, and the secular movement in the territories is, of course, uh, in, in great measure, a movement of religious settlers. It's not accepted <coughs> conventional wisdom among historians of the conflict, but I'm telling you that 48 was also a jihadi religious war. But this is my view. This is what I think the evidence tells us. More study needs to be done on the subject. I only, I think, scratched the surface in this sense. On the 2nd of December, 1947, three or four days after the UN passed its partition resolution, the ulama of Al-Azhar University, the leading university in the Arab world, the oldest university in the Arab world, the leading university of the Arab world, its council of theologians, what are called the ulama in Arabic, passed a fatwa a religious ruling, uh, and Al-Azhar, Sheikh, and Ulama are uh, the most important religious um, deciders or rulers uh, in the Sunni Arab world. There is no pope in the Muslim world. It divides into Sunnis and Shiites, and among the Sunnis also there's no one religious figure who's important. But if there is one religious body which is the most important in Sunni Islam, that's the Ulama of Al-Azhar University, headed by the Sheikh of Al-Azhar the rector of the university. On the 2nd of December, they passed a fatwa calling on the world's Muslims to go out on jihad to destroy the incipient Jewish state. They called on all Muslims, all fit Muslims, those unfit were supposed to uh, contribute other things, but fit Muslims were, according to uh, their interpretation of the Quran, were uh, bound to join, uh, mobilize and join the uh, crusade against the Jews in Palestine. This um, fatwa um, was reiterated by the ulama of Al-Azhar in April 1948, a few days before the Egyptian army and other Arab armies marched into Palestine. It was done in advance of that, and if you like, to give it religious imprimatur. Um, and was reiterated again, strangely enough, in December 1948, the fatwa, by Al-Azhar, meaning that the Egyptian, the, the uh, um, Sunni clergy, the, the most important element in Sunni, 
uh, the Sunni clergy was basically saying, we know we've lost the war. By December, it was clear the Arabs had lost the war, but we're issuing the, reissuing the fatwa because this has to stand for future years and future generations for the second and third and whatever bout there will be against the Jews. It is still uh, imperative on the um, um, Muslims um, to uh, destroy the Jewish uh, state. Um, in January 1948, a month later, a woman called Matiel Morana um, gave an interview. Now, the woman was a Lebanese Christian woman who had married a, 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 um, a Palestinian uh, and served as the chairwoman of a very small organization, which was, in fact, the women's organization attached to the Arab Higher Committee. The Arab Higher Committee was the ruling body of uh, the Palestinian Arab National Movement after 1936, and was the, the group headed by Hajjamin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, in, uh, the exiled Mufti of Jerusalem, in which had led the Palestinians to reject the 47 UN resolution and had led them to war. Uh, this woman headed the women's organization of the Arab Higher Committee, and she gave an interview. Um, uh, this Lebanese Christian woman who had, had moved to Palestine a few years before. The UN decision, she said in this interview, has united all Arabs as they have never been united before, not even against the Crusaders. A Jewish state has no chance to survive now that the holy war has been declared. All the Jews will eventually be massacred. Mm -hmm. This is the Christian woman of Lebanon. Uh, um, um, apparently, she also took, um, uh, was impressed by the um, fatwa for jihad, the, the, the atmosphere uh, surrounding the war of jihad. In August 1948, this is six months on, the Palestinians by then had lost their civil war, had been crushed, many of them going into exile. In, in one of the exiled members of the Arab Higher Committee, which I mentioned before, the ruling body of the Palestinian National Movement, Emil Ruri, uh, uh, said in an interview, I think it was in the Daily Telegraph in London, we must inculcate in the heart of every Arab hatred for the Jews, and we must renew the jihad against Israel. And this is a Christian, again, uh, not a Muslim. Following the 15 May 1948 invasion by the Arab armies of Palestine, the Saudi regime ruled from uh, Riyadh, uh, organized what were called jihadi festivals. Some 2,000 uh, people registered as volunteers to fight uh, in the war. And it was reported that at the time by British diplomats uh, who were told this by Saudis apparently, Saudi officials, that 200,000 are ready to perform jihad and sacrifice their lives. Thankfully, the 200,000 didn't actually mobilize or arrive anywhere. But the whole point of what I'm saying is the, the word that word had gotten around and was accepted that jihad, this was jihad. Distances were long, people can't travel, couldn't travel then as they do today to Turkey and then cross over a border and go, go on jihad. It wasn't very simple then. There were British, um, a British presence uh, pre prevented that also. A British presence in Egypt prevented the uh, volunteers from reaching the battlefront from the Maghreb, from Morocco, Algeria, and Tunis. But there was some uh, foreign participation, some of it even from Bosnia, based on jihad. The second thing which came up as I was writing the book was the war aims of the different sides in the conflict. Uh, traditionally, the Jews at the time and since then have described the Arab war aim as throwing the Jews into the sea. That was the phrase. Looking at the documentation, um, it's, it's far more complex than that. Um, the, the war aims on the Jewish side were actually quite simple. 
in, in both parts of the war, in the civil war and in the in, uh, war between the states. Uh, the Jews wanted to survive. The Jewish community in Palestine fought for its survival, uh, and then the state of Israel and its community fought for survival against the Arab invading armies. That was the essential main worry, to survive, to weather the onslaught. Um, to that initial war aim, accrued a second war aim, more or less in March, April 1948, which was to expand the borders of the Jewish state beyond the territory allocated by the UN for Jewish statehood. The UN had allocated something like 6,000 square miles of Palestine's 10,000 square miles in its 1947 resolution for a Jewish state. In March, April, after four months of assault by Palestine's Arabs and with the prospect of the pan-Arab invasion being imminent, the Arabs kept saying, we're going to invade as soon as the British leave. Zionist leadership, military and political, said, well, if the, what was decided by the UN has been thrown in the trash can by Arab aggression, uh, we're not going to abide by the borders the UN allocated as well. And from that point on, added certain territories uh, uh, to the state. And uh, Israel emerged from the war incidentally with 8,000 square miles of Palestine's 10,000 square miles. In other words, it had gained 2,000 extra square miles in the course of the fighting. So that's the second war aim. The third war aim, um, uh, which also was added to the Jewish war aim, never became official, it never was enunciated as policy, um, but I believe can be seen as a war aim, though there are arguments among historians about this to this day, um, and that was to reduce the number of Arabs in the Jewish state as it emerged. If you like to expel Arabs, to have as few Arabs, as small an Arab minority as possible in the emergent Jewish state, and the army and the civil bureaucracies um, um, did, took measures, occasionally even expelling Arab populations from villages and towns, um, to achieve this uh, goal. Expelling the Arabs was never adopted as policy. It was never adopted as policy by any of the major political parties, Mahai and so on in the coalition. It was never adopted as policy by the cabinet of the Jewish state. It was never adopted uh, as policy by the general staff of the army. Um, but there was an atmosphere of transfer and some units kicked out Arabs and all units and the government decided in June 1948 or the units followed, following the government's decision in June which was periodically reiterated not to allow refugees to return. In other words, if people had fled their homes, their towns, their villages and so on, uh, the government had decided not on, on their expulsion but not to allow them to return, which can be, if you, if you like, seen as an expulsive decision, but that's the expulsive element in official policy. On the Arab side, you have to look at the Palestinian Arab war aims, and then in the second half of the war, at the Arab states war aims. And here you have a number of problems. In, a historian encounters a number of problems, one of which is methodological, if you like, and that is that there is no Palestinian archive. There is no national archive, so there was no Palestinian state. It was a a fairly backward society, it didn't produce documentation, and we don't know what was decided or said in the councils where things were decided by the Palestinian national leadership, much of which was abroad, uh, living in exile in Egypt, in Lebanon. Um, so we don't really have firm uh, uh, 
proof of what the Palestinians wanted as they went to war, not to mention that the Palestinians themselves were disorganized. So if Hadjamin wanted something, the head of the Palestine uh, Arab Higher Committee, it doesn't mean that people who belong to the opposition to Hadjamin or Husseini thought the same way, or that the different uh, armed bands who fought in Palestine had any clear idea of what the real national goal was. Uh, he didn't really control them properly. That's one of the reasons they lost the war, the Palestinians. So you have a problem of that sort as well. What is clear, incidentally, and this came to me as a surprise going through the documentation which is available, which is uh, Israeli documentation, UN documentation, American documentation, English documentation, and there's a lot of it, um, was that you don't hear almost ever the phrase throwing the Jews into the sea. In other words, Western diplomats uh, reporting from Amman, uh, Palestine, the British authorities living in Palestine, talking to Arabs, etc. They don't hear this phrase being used. Now, it could be that the Palestinian leadership was being cautious. It may have said it in, its, in, a, in the councils, but they didn't say this to British or American diplomats, and Israeli intelligence didn't monitor radio traffic or other types of communications in which they said this clear sentence, our aim is to destroy the Jewish state or throw them into the sea. It's not that it doesn't appear at all. It appeared, but very rarely in Palestinian uh, discourse at the time among the leadership. <coughs> um, the same incidentally is true about the Arab states. They usually talk, uh, when they go to war, they talk about saving the Palestinians, not throwing the Jews into the sea, but saving the Palestinians from the Jews. Occasionally you'll find the phrase used, throw the Jews into the sea. The Secretary General of the Arab League, Abdul Rahman uh, Azam, used that phrase uh, when he talked to uh, the British a representative in Amman just before the Pan-Arab invasion in early May, and he said, well, uh, and this is what Kirkbride, the British representative, then brought, uh, sent on to London, uh, uh, the man said, we'll throw the Jews into the sea. That's what Azam said, and you can see the Secretary General of the Arab League represents the Arab consensus or Pan-Arab uh, pan view. One other thing, there was a fly in the ointment on the Arab side. The Arab coalition, which went to war and sent their armies across the borders on the 15th of May, included Jordan, which had the best of the Arab armies. It was a small army. It was called the Arab Legion, the Jordanian army. Um, but it was the best of the Arab armies. Um, um, and their purpose, the purpose of the Arab Legion, wasn't to destroy the Jewish state or even attack the Jewish state. It didn't attack the Jewish state at any point in the 48 war, in the May 1948 invasion, the Jordanian army went into Palestine to take over the West Bank and to annex it for the king, Abdullah. That's what he wanted them to do, not to fight the Jews. He then went into Jerusalem and decided to, um, if you like, break his uh, agreement with the British. The British had agreed that he take over the West Bank in what's today more called the West Bank. And they hadn't agreed to him going into Jerusalem, and he decided, what the hell? It's going easily. I'll go to East Jerusalem and take over that area where my father is buried, the, uh, the holy sites of Islam, the, King the ha Abdullah belonged to the Hashemite family whose function in Islam or in the Arab world was always to look after the holy sites of Islam until they were kicked out of Mecca and Medina by the Ibn Saud family. But th they had this thing about holy sites. So he went into Jerusalem and this ended up causing a, a, a lot of combat between the Arab Legion and the Jewish army. But he didn't attack the areas allocated by the United Nations for Jewish statehood at any point. His armies did not cross the border and attack the areas allocated by the, Jews, the United Nations for Jewish statehood. So in other words, you have this pan-Arab invasion. And we know that the aim of the Jordanians was to take the West Bank. 
The Egyptians didn't want the Jordanians to get too much of Palestine, so in part their invasion was geared to taking other areas of Palestine to prevent them falling into Abdullah's hands, not to prevent the Jews from getting them. This wasn't complex, incidentally, in traditional Israeli historiography. From 48 onwards, a, a Israeli historiography presented a massed attack of Palestinians and then of the Arab states on a, a, the Jewish community and then the state of Israel in a, as geared to the destruction of the Jewish community and of the state. In, in, and always said, incidentally, that five Arab armies had attacked Israel, and in fact, only actually four crossed the border, and only three of them attacked Israel and Israeli territory. The Lebanese, the fifth uh, element in the Arab invasion, actually never crossed the border. They announced on their radio, the Lebanese, that we've crossed the border and attacked Israel, but the troops actually hadn't crossed the border and hadn't moved uh, uh, on orders from the Christian president and the Christian chief of, chief of staff of the Lebanese army. A third subject which emerged from looking at the war was that the war created three refugee problems. One of the refugee problems, and that is of 70,000 Jews displaced in the country in the course of the war. Kibbutzim along the borders, sending their women and children to Tel Aviv or to other kibbutzim in the interior, in villages and towns which had been overrun by Arabs, not that many of them, but some had been overrun, and their populations exiled, some uh, sent away, or, uh, for example, the, the uh, uh, inhabitants of the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, some 1,500 people, were uh, simply thrown out by the Jordanians. And so we have a sort of a dozen villages in, in, in neighborhoods uh, in which this occurred. And 70,000 Jews for much of the world lived, uprooted from their homes in another, other parts of Palestine. Uh, you can say 70,000 isn't much of a figure, but 70,000 was 10% or slightly more than 10% of the whole population of Jewish Palestine. So it wasn't insignificant having to take them in to care for them and so on for a, 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 a people at war on all, all, all its fronts in, uh, during the war. Um, so it was a serious refugee problem. It vanished at the end of the war. By the end of the war, the Israelis had reconquered most of the places that had fallen. The kibbutzim had been made safe, and so the women and children returned to the border of kibbutzim. Um, and those who uh, ended up, uh, who had lived in territory which ended up in Arab hands, uh, were simply uh, resettled somewhere else, like the uh, population of the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. So the, the problem of Jewish, Jewish refugees in Palestine from the war vanished by 1949. It didn't last, if you don't hear about it. But there was a Jewish refugee problem in Palestine during the war. The second refugee problem is, of course, the refugee problem created in, uh, among the Arabs, uh, in which 700,000 approximately were uprooted. 700,000 Arabs were uprooted from their homes in the area which became the State of Israel, meaning the area allocated by the United Nations for Jewish statehood, plus the areas conquered by the Jews in the course of the war beyond those borders. Uh, altogether, some 700,000. This argument about the number, uh, the Arabs said it was 900,000, the Jews said it was 500,000, the UN generally said it was about 700 and something thousand, and that's the, probably the, the right number. And nobody really knows. But anyhow, something like 700,000 Arabs were uprooted. Um, most of them, incidentally, were uprooted from one part of Palestine to another, not out of the country. Two-thirds of the 700,000 ended up living in refugee camps or villages in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Only one-third ended up in other countries, in Lebanon, Syria, and Transjordan, across the Jordan. 700,000 were thus uprooted, and several hundred thousand of them ended up in, in, in the Arab states. 
Uh, those, uh, incidentally, who reach Lebanon today, there's maybe four or five hundred thousand Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. Uh, oh, having multiplied from the original 90,000 or whatever it was in 1948, don't have citizenship in Lebanon. Uh, they live without citizenship and generally without a uh, work permit. So not allowed to work or live, basically, in Lebanon in any normal way. They just live off, uh, uh, basically, Western uh, contributions, Western donations uh, via uh, UNRWA and so on. Um, those who, which re those who reached um, Syria ended up uh, without Syrian citizenship. The Syrians didn't give them citizenship. Um, uh, but do have, they do have work permits, so they are generally allowed to work. Those who reached the Gaza Strip didn't receive Egyptian citizenship. The G Egyptians took over the Gaza Strip in the 48 war, but were never, never gave the Palestinians their citizenship, and they remain basically citizenless to this day, them and their descendants, um, in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, to this day. Those in the West Bank and those who reached East Jordan <coughs> did receive Jordanian citizenship from the Jordanians, um, uh, and most of them to this, to this day carry Jordanian citizenship, though in Jordan they complain that they are second-class citizens. They're not allowed into the higher reaches of the army or the office <coughs> of the army and security services and so on, but they do enjoy <coughs> basic citizenship and basic rights in Jordan. But I wanted to talk about the third refugee problem, which is less known, in a, and that is the refugeedom of something like 700 to 800,000 Jews from Arab countries. The Jewish communities who lived in the Arab countries before 1948 were all essentially exiled from their lands, from their homes, from their uh, businesses in, uh, in the wake of the 48 war. Some of them left already at the end of the 48 war. Some of them left uh, even a decade and a half later. The Moroccan Jewish community, the largest of the Arab Jewish communities, 300,000 left um, only in the 60s after the French had left and after a benign sultan had died. Um, but they were all essentially victims uh, of the war. The intimidation into flight of the Jews of the Arab lands begins with a series of pogroms at the end of 1947, within days or hours, if you like, after the UN passes its partition resolution on the 29th of November. The beginning of December, there's a big pogrom in Aden of Yemeni Jews who are killed. 70 Yemeni Jews who have moved there, they live in camps outside Aden, are murdered, and there were also a series of pogroms in Khaled, Aleppo, Bahrain, and a few other places, which intimidated the Jews into flight. The first community, in fact, which left en masse is the uh, Yemeni Jewish community. In, in, in 1949, essentially, they were flown out. They all sort of marched, trekked from Yemen to Aden. Aden at the time wasn't part of Yemen. They trekked southwards to Aden and then were flown out basically by, uh, by the Israelis, almost all of them arriving in Israel. Um, um, Iraqi Jews and uh, Egyptian Jews, the two most um, prosperous Jewish communities in the Arab world, in Iraq there were about 130,000, in Egypt maybe the number was 60,000, um, um, were essentially persecuted in the course of the 48th war. Their leaderships, hundreds or even thousands, of the, the businessmen, the, the doctors, the lawyers, the teachers were uh, put in concentration camps, both in Egypt and in, in Iraq, in 48 and in 49, in two waves. In, and, and essentially, uh, the Iraqi Jews were um, uh, pushed out of the country in 1950. They were all flown out, <coughs> um, essentially, by Israel. The wealthier ones ended up in England, in, in, uh, England maybe America. Uh, the poorer ones, meaning the vast bulk of the Iraqi Jewish community, ended up in Israel. 
Uh, the same the same pattern incidentally adheres in adhered in um, uh, North Africa. The poorer Jews, meaning the 90, 90 or eighty five percent who were uh, poor, many of them in, in fact illiterate in, in, in Morocco, um, were uh, moved moved to Israel in the nineteen sixties. Um, and the richer ones ended up in France. The wealthier and better educated ones ended up in France. So it wasn't only a process of being driven out of push by the Arab societies and the Arab states in which they live. Uh, as I said, there were pogroms, there were mass incarcerations, uh, there was a lot of social pressure. Um, um, but it was also to do with the poor. Now, the, the Arab Jewish communities, the Jewish communities in the Arab lands, had never been Zionists. They may have been religious and had this religious impulse of looking to you know, the, the land of Israel uh, as holy and perhaps something which uh, maybe the Messiah would uh, bring them back to at some point. But they weren't Zionists. They didn't become Zionists in the national sense, except for very, very small minorities. Um, so they didn't have this impulse to come to Palestine. And for, for, on the other side, the Zionist leadership in the 20s, 30s, 40s didn't look to the Arabs of the Jews of the Arab lands to come to Palestine. They knew they were not Zionists. In, and they didn't really need them in, before the Holocaust because they had a ready-made pool of potential immigrants who would build the Zionist state in Eastern and Central Europe. But when the Holocaust occurred after 45, in the Zionist leadership began to look to the East, to the Arab lands, to the Muslim lands, for potential immigrants, and so stretched out their hands and sent emissaries to try and persuade Jews to start coming and so when the push began in the Arab states in 1948-49, there was also a certain amount of pull from the Jewish side, from the Zionist side, to bring these people to Palestine, uh, to Israel, what was now Israel. And uh, so you ended up with um, a majority of Israelis in the, by the 1980s who were actually of uh, Oriental or Arab extraction, extraction from Arab states. That changed a bit in the 1990s because a million Russian Jews came to Israel and that changed the balance again to an Ashkenazi majority in the 1990s. But, but in, in most of the immigrants in the 50s and 60s were, of course, from the Arab lands. I'll devote another two minutes, three minutes, to one other subject which arose in writing the book on 48. And that it's also a controversial subject. And, uh, people are also sensitive about it for, some, uh, for various reasons. Um, and that is to do with the balance of forces between the various sides in the 48 war. That is, between the Jewish community and the Arab community in Palestine during the Civil War, and between the State of Israel and the Arab states in the second half, the uh, war between the states, the balance of forces between the sides. Now, what happened in Palestine, Israel in 48 was a victory of the stronger side. There's a moral question, first of all. The Israelis have always liked to portray themselves in 48 and later as the David fighting a massive Goliath. And when you look at the map, of course, there is a massive Goliath. The Arab world stretches from here till kingdom come, and they have hundreds of millions of people today, and then they had tens of millions of people, but they vastly outnumbered the Jews and potentially vastly overpowered the Jews economically in Palestine, those 630,000 who lived in Palestine. So potentially the Arab states were, of course, much, much stronger than the Jewish community in Palestine, or the measly Jewish community in Palestine. Uh, but what actually happened in the course of the war was the Jews organized themselves better. They were far better educated, knew how to organize things better. They were far more unified. They had much stronger motivation than the Palestinian Arabs and certainly the Arab armies invading from outside. 
you know, an Egyptian comes to fight in Palestine, okay, Islam and so on, but still he's not fighting for his family or his home. The Jews in Palestine are fighting for their homes. The Iraqi uh, troopers who come from Iraq to Palestine, they barely know where Palestine is. So uh, they're, not, they're not fighting for their homes. This is the point. The motivation is much smaller. The Jews are fighting for their homes and for their lives and for the lives of their loved ones who are just behind the front line, given that the state is very, very small. In addition, the war occurs two, three years after the Holocaust. And the Jews are persuaded and convinced that the Arabs want to throw them into the sea to kill them all. So they, this raises motivation. We, we, we have to defend ourselves and do it well, otherwise we're all going to be slaughtered. That was how it was seen, and it may, may have actually ended that way had the Jews lost the war. Even if the Arab policy wasn't to slaughter all the Jews in Palestine should they win the war, this could have been the side effect of victory. Arab armies conquering Tel Aviv. Who knows how the Arab troops conquering Tel Aviv would have behaved? Uh, we see Arab, Arabs behaving in the Middle East in various very unpleasant ways now, and they've done this for a long, long time. It's not something new. So uh, the Jews had a good reason to think that something really terrible was going to happen should they lose the war. So this adds a lot of motivation. The Jews were much stronger than the Arabs economically. Uh, this doesn't look right, but that's how it was. The Jews were supported by uh, American Jewry economically. <coughs> Um, they received somewhere between 100 and 150 million dollars in the course of the year to fight the war, to wage the war. And that money was an enormous amount of money. That's billions and billions of dollars in today's terms. And <coughs> enabled the Jews to tide themselves over the war, to purchase arms, and to bring, bring them in and to uh, deploy them. In addition, there was a, a, a large qualitative manpower edge on the Jewish side. That is, the Jews were much better soldiers than the Arabs by and large, save, if you like, for the Arab Legion, which is probably the best of the armies fighting in the war, though, as I said, it was very small. The Jews, many of them had had some form of um, military experience in the British Army in World War II or other uh, areas. They had several thousand volunteers coming from abroad, pilots, uh, naval personnel, even uh, tank commanders. The, the commander of one of the major tank brigades was a, a Canadian, for example, um, uh, the 7th Brigade. Ben Dunkelman. Um, so, so they had some, a lot of expertise in warfare, or a certain amount of expertise, whereas the Arab armies, save for the Jordanians, had no military experience at all. And, any, and they weren't really armies built for war. Only after 45 did the French and the British begin to try and build up these armies into proper armies. Before that, they were essentially palace guards, you know, who paraded up and down or something outside the, the, you know, the, the king's palace. Um, so they, were, they weren't very efficient. This isn't exactly to dismiss the, the, the danger. Um, on the 12th of May 1948, two days before Israel declared independence, and three days before the Arab armies marched in from across the borders, Ben-Gurion summoned his um, defense chiefs for a consultation and asked them, the prospect was there was going to be a pan-Arab invasion, and he asked them, uh, General Igail Yadin, who was the head of operations of the Haganah, in effect the commander-in-chief of the Haganah, the commander was sick most of the war, um, and Israel Galili, his number two, he asked them, what do you think are the chances of survival or victory should the Arab states invade, as they said they would and as they did? And Igail Yadin says to him, 50-50. That's the chances. He uses two phrases. He says 50-50 in English, and he says, which means the chances are equal. Now this, of course, was based on the premise that the Arab armies would function fairly efficiently, which they didn't. Uh, but nonetheless, they did manage to fight, and, and uh, they gave Israel a very hard time. Uh, 6,000 Jews died in the War of Independence. That's 1% of the Jewish population was killed. 
say America had lost 1% of its population in the Vietnam War. They actually lost America 58,000 people dead in the Vietnam War over 10 years. Israel lost 6,000, 1% of the population. Had America lost 1% of its population in the Vietnam War, you would have had 1.5 million dead. That's what we're talking about. That's the equivalent. So it, was a, it wasn't an easy struggle, even though it sounds in retrospect that the Jews should have won because they had a lot of elements going for them. 